a couple of things real quick. Um, we were just talking about Operation Christmas Child, which I, I, I love this time of year. I do. I, I love the holidays. I love uh, Halloween. I love Thanksgiving. I love Christmas, all of that. Uh, and uh, I, I really love what Operation Christmas Child is about. Uh, I, I think that what we're doing is we're not just sending shoeboxes that are filled with, like, hygiene items and toys and stuff like that. But what we're doing is we're sending, uh, we are shipping shoeboxes that are, are filled with love, filled with love and filled with hope. And uh, the love of Jesus, and what we're doing is we're trying to show children uh, that they matter to God by showing them that they matter to us. And what we do in, in those boxes is that they have a little message of hope in there that tells them about how they can have uh, hope in Jesus. And, and that really is life-changing for children. They need that. They need to know they're loved by God. They need to know that they have hope, uh, and that hope is in the person of Jesus. So real excited about that. Uh, I'm also excited uh, coming up in December we're going to have a special children's program uh, as we're ramping up to Christmas, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but also after the beginning of the new year, we're going to do something that we call 90 Days with Jesus. And uh, what this is about is uh, we really want to grow in our love for God. Uh, we want to grow in our love for God. We want to grow in our love for our neighbor and how we seek the good of our community. And we want to grow in our love for one another. And uh, so what we're going to be doing is growing in our love for God. Is uh, Every Sunday, obviously, we'll be meeting here for worship, hearing uh, from God's Word. Uh, but also we're going to have something called this 90 Days uh, with Jesus Prayer Journal and Bible Reading Journal. And what that will do is it will guide you through the first 90 chapters in the New Testament, uh, all four Gospels plus the, the first chapter of Acts. And uh, so what we want to do is we want to really invest ourselves in growing in our love for God and invest ourselves in, in uh, growing in our love for God by reading God's Word daily, by praying daily, but also by meeting weekly to worship together and to hear from God together. But we also want to, to really invest in loving our neighbor and seeking the good of our community, just kind of like what we did yesterday. I mean, uh, you know, Jen, I really appreciate Jen. I appreciate her leadership. I appreciate everybody who came yesterday and helped us serve. And, and that's what we want to do is, is what we're doing is we're seeking the good of our community and we're seeking ways that we can love uh, uh, our, our neighbor. So what we're going to be doing is uh, after the first of the year, we'll be ramping up to our, our Easter egg hunt and uh, also to uh, Easter in our special uh, after-church reception. But we'll also be ramping up to, to Week of Hope. And uh, this year, we're going to be doing Week of Hope a little bit differently. Uh, but Kimberly, uh, what she wants to do, she wants to, to, us to really do a great job, a fantastic job of loving uh, children in our community through a VBS. And so what we'll do is probably that Sunday before Week of Hope, we're going to do a car wash like what we've done in the past be inviting people, uh, inviting children to, to come to the VBS. It'll be that Monday through Thursday evening. And then what we're going to do this year, instead of doing a barbecue on Thursday night, we're going to have an after-church barbecue uh, in a Celebration of Hope barbecue that, that Sunday. Uh, and so we'll be inviting the children, inviting their families who participate in the VBS. Along with this, we'll probably also be doing uh, a food drive with Solano Food Bank again, like what we did last year. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to be, uh, again, what we want to do is we want to share uh, and show people they matter to God by showing them they matter to us. And we want to be giving people uh, the hope that we have in Jesus. So that's going to be after the first of the year, really looking forward to that. Uh, we've been working our way right now through uh, 1 Corinthians. 
and you just happen to be here on the day we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Anyway, uh, we're, we're here, we're going to be looking at that, and uh, before I dive into that, just real quickly, let me just kind of talk to you a little bit uh, about myself. Um, for me, uh, for me, uh, you know, one thing that I know, uh, and it's, it's just um, brutally apparent to me, is that, that I, uh, I'm a sinner, okay? I'm, I'm not a perfect pastor, we're not a perfect church, but we serve a perfect Savior, okay? Uh, but one thing that I know, and it really doesn't take a lot of in-depth study or anything like that for me to figure out, is that I'm a sinner, and I know what I need more than anything else is I need a Savior. I don't need a self-improvement program. The Bible is not a self-improvement book. The Bible is a salvation book. And what I need is not self-improvement, I need salvation. And what I need in the saving work of Jesus is I need to experience redemption in every part of my life. And so sometimes I think that that what can happen is we go to church and we think, yeah, we're saved by Jesus and by faith in him, but now what we do is we start this little self-improvement plan. That's not what we're doing. What we want to do is we want to live lives that are shaped by the gospel. And we want to look at what does God's word teach us and how does God want us to be shaped by the gospel in every area of our lives, including how we think about sex, how we think about marriage, how we think about family, how we think about every other part of our lives. Is that God calling I must have missed something we, we needed to include here. Um, let me pray for us, and we're going we're gonna to jump into this. Let's pray real quick. God, today, uh, what we want to do is, uh, instead of asking you to change what your word says to adapt to our lives, what we want to do, God, is we want to bring ourselves uh, under the teaching of your word. And what we want to do is we don't want to try to, to follow the teaching of Scripture like a self-help book. Instead, what we want to do is we want to see our lives shaped by the gospel and how we think about every area. And God, this morning we're going to be touching on some things. For, for some of us, there's some pain here. Uh, for some of us, we've made some really big mistakes. For some of us, we've experienced trauma due to uh, maybe the sin of other people in our lives. And so, uh, God, this is the kind of thing for us that sometimes it's really hard for us to listen well and learn well. So my prayer, my prayer, is that as we look at your word together, that you would give us eyes to see and you would give us ears to hear and that you would give us hearts to understand. Uh, And that's my prayer, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, uh, most of my instruction about sex kind of went like this. Okay? Is it okay if I talk about sex? I mean, the Bible talks about it. Um, Most of my instruction kind of sounded like this. Kind of sounded like, don't have sex before you get married. And after you get married, don't have sex out of marriage. You got that? Good. And it just kind of ended right there. And and I I really feel like uh, that kind of misses a lot of really good stuff that we find in the Bible. There's a, a, a gal, her name is Sheila Ray Gregor. Anybody know who 
Sheila Gregorius? Nobody. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Sheila has written a few books, about nine books, uh, including an award-winning book uh, called the, the Good Girl's Guide to Sex. She is a speaker, a blogger, and uh, I came across this book a few years ago, and I could get it free on Kindle, so I bought it. And uh, I, I bought it for not just because it was free, uh, uh, but also because I read a couple of lines, and when I read those lines, I, I was really intrigued by some of the things she said. Now, I have a few books on the subject of sex. Uh, sex is a pretty important subject. It's a very, very important subject in the Bible. And it's a very, very important part of our lives and how God has made us. And what the Bible teaches us is that our sexuality is a gift from God. Okay? It's a gift. It's a gift. And, uh, and, and uh, when I was reading her book, what I liked was most of the books I've read have been written by men. And it was kind of interesting and kind of good to hear a little bit of a woman's perspective. And one of the things that, that, that Sheila is, is she's a, she's a really, really good writer. She's a very good uh, communicator. And, and, and what she says is this. Part of what she says in her books is she says, sex is the physical acting out. Sex is the physical acting out of everything that marriage is. You got that? Sex is the physical acting out of everything that marriage is. We become vulnerable with one another. We become vulnerable with one another. Uh, we become naked with one another completely. And that means real intimacy, not just physical intimacy. We cherish each other. We protect each other. But we also have a ton of fun with each other. That God made sex to feel great, but he also made it to be a deeply intimate experience. By the way, when you separate the physical aspect of sex from the, the, the emotional, spiritual intimacy that's supposed to go with it, oh, you miss something wonderful. You miss something fantastic. She goes on to say later in her book, she says this, making love... Making love tells a spouse, I value you, I love you, I desire you, I accept you. When we don't make love, when we don't make love, this is important for us to talk about. This is very important for us to talk about because the Bible talks about this. When we don't make love, the Bible talks about not making love. Did you know that? It does. When we don't make love, it's as if we're telling our spouse the opposite. We're telling our spouse, I don't value you. I don't love you. I don't desire you. I don't accept you. That's really, really a powerful thought. Um, I think that Satan, one of the things that Satan would love to do, I believe in a real Satan, by the way. I do, okay? Uh, I think one of the things that Satan loves to do is he loves to get people, he loves to get people, he will do anything and everything he can to get people to have sex before marriage. And then he'll get those same people, and he will do everything he can to keep those same people from having sex after they have marriage. After they have marriage. So what I want us to do is I want us to open the Bible and I want us to look at what the Bible teaches us about making love, not making love, 
in the context of marriage. Paul writes to um, the Corinthians, and, and the church in Corinth, remember this, the church in Corinth was a church that was in turmoil. Okay? I, I said earlier, I'm not a perfect pastor, we're not a perfect church, but we serve a perfect Savior. Okay? If we're not a perfect church, Corinth was even a more imperfect church. Okay? Uh, the, the church in Corinth had lots of problems. There was lots of conflict in the church. There was a lot of sexual immorality. I've shared with you that in, in the city of Corinth, there was a word that was, that was uh, in, in the Greek lang- language to Corinthianize, which basically meant to have sex with prostitutes. Okay? And, and the whole city of Corinth was a city where there was all kinds of sexual morality. The temple of Aphrodite had a thousand different prostitutes thousand different prostitutes who had plied their trade through the city. And it was a common practice, common practice among non-Christian married men. And it was a common practice among Christian married men in Corinth to have sex with prostitutes. That was a part of the whole context of the book of Corinthians. But uh, also, when Paul writes to uh, the Corinthians, he's writing in response to a letter. I don't know how many of y'all know this. But he had received a letter, uh, probably from a woman named Chloe, because he also talks about what, hearing about uh, all the conflict in the church from Chloe's people. Uh, but he received this letter, probably from Chloe and other leaders in the church there, uh, outlining some of their questions and, and their concerns. And beginning in chapter 7 to the end of the book, he begins to address those concerns. And what Paul says is this. He says, now for the matters you wrote about. Okay? Now for the matters you wrote about. So the Corinthians had written to Paul. The book of 1 Corinthians is a response to a letter written by the people of Corinth. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Anything sound strange to you about those words? Okay? They should. They should sound very strange to you. Because in Genesis chapter 2, what does the Bible say? It says it's not good for a man to be alone. But here, he's writing, and he says, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do you notice that those words are in quotation marks? This is taken straight from the NIV Bible. You notice that they're in quotation marks. By the way, in the ESV ESV Bible, same thing. They're in quotation marks. Why are they in quotation marks? Because the translators of both the NIV and the ESV understand this to be a statement that Paul is repeating to the Corinthians about what was written to Paul by the Corinthians. So what he says, he says, Now concerning the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, but, you see that word but? If you've got your Bible in front of you, circle it. Okay? Circle that word, all right? Circle that word. Why? Why? Because it is a really, really important word. In, in, in English, it's only three letters, B-U-T, okay? In Greek, it's much smaller. It's only two letters, D-E, or delta epsilon, death, okay? That is what's called an adversative conjunction, okay? Now, that's going to put you to sleep. You're, you're like, Gary, how can you talk about sex and put me to sleep, all right? It's an adversative conjunction. And why that's important is this, is because when that word is inserted right there, it's saying that what I'm about to tell you is different from what I just said. Okay? 
What I'm about to tell you is contrasting with what I just said. See, what I just said is it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, and there was, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Men, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. The Bible says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Verse 5, do not deprive each other. Do not deprive each other. By the way, that word deprive, again, very important word, circle it. Very important word, uh, circle that word. We're going we're to come back to this and talk about it a little bit more, uh, a little bit later. He says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent. In other words, it's never one way. Except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, for a time, uh, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, okay? Come together again, come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, uh, uh, one has this gift, another has that, okay? So there's a lot going on in this text, and right now, my head is swimming, okay? And your head may be swimming a little bit too. So I'm going to try to do my best to kind of uh, unpack this and kind of talk about uh, what's going on here and what's really important. The, the most important thing we need to understand is this, is that, that, that uh, okay, uh, let's, let's, let's go off script a little bit for a moment, okay? When we study the scriptures, it's real important that we look at it in its immediate context. Can we agree to that? really, really important that we know a little bit about Corinth. We know a little bit about what was actually happening there. And the more we understand what was happening in the immediate context, the better we understand what's actually written. All right? So we want to do that. And when we do that, some Bible scholars like to call this, uh, they, they like to call it a synchronous study of the Scriptures. In other words, we're looking at a text that is written in a moment of time, written in a moment of time that has a context. But we don't want to just study uh, the Bible uh, synchronically. We also want to study the Bible diachronically, okay, through time. In other words, yes, this statement was written in a specific moment, moment in time to a specific group of people who had a specific problem that they were addressing. But also what we see with the Bible, the Bible is not just a collection of stories. It's not just a collection of writings, but it is one great, huge meta-narrative, one great, grand story. And this bigger story of the Bible is this, that God created all things good. He created us male and female. He created us in his image, and he called it very good. But then what God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he made uh, for the man a woman who was ideally suited for him. 
And, and he blessed that union. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And so what God created was all good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, something happens. Sin enters God's good creation. See, because you and I know, we know that, yeah, maybe God made all things good, but not everything in our lives, not everything in our community is good. No. No, not everything in our community is good. Not everything in our lives is good. Not everything in our world is good. In fact, we, we see a lot of confusion. We see a lot of suffering. We see a lot of death. And see, confusion entered God's good creation because of sin. Suffering entered God's good creation because of sin. And death entered God's good creation because of sin. And so in this story, we have that God created all things good, but then sin entered God's good creation. By the way, the first two chapters of the Bible, everything is good. The last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, what? All things are good again. And the rest of the Bible, between that very, very bad day in Genesis 3 to the very, very good day that's eventually coming, God is redeeming his creation. He's redeeming his creation. He, in, in, in the very center of all of the Bible is this, one person, the person of Jesus. Everything in the Bible is either preparing us for or pointing us to the coming of Jesus. And what God wants to do through Jesus is he wants to redeem us, but he wants to redeem every part of our lives. He wants to redeem our sexuality. He wants to redeem our marriages. He wants to make all things good in our lives. Are you with me here? So here in the Bible, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we have a specific context, a specific group of people who are struggling with a lot of confusion. They're struggling with a lot of confusion. There are some people who are saying, hey, it doesn't matter how you have sex, just have sex. Sex is just an appetite. That's... 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sex is just an appetite. Satisfy your appetite. Obey your thirst. If it feels good, do it. But then in chapter 7, we have, see another group of people. And this group of people are saying, those people are really messed up. Those people, they're really messed up. They are just doing whatever they want. We're going we're gonna to starve our desires. We're going to starve the flesh. We're going to beat it into submission. It's called asceticism, okay, which is not, it's not the Bible. It's not the gospel. It's a philosophy. It's a way of living that was common among the Greeks. The, the many of them were dualists. They believed that the material world was basically evil and bad, and the spiritual world is all good. By the way, there are some Christians today who live and think like dualists. They think that somehow that sex is dirty or the body is dirty. And that's not true. The Bible says it is when God created us and gave us bodies, he said that's good. And when God made us male and female, he said that is very good. And, and he called the union of marriage good. All of these things are good. But with regards to the Corinthians and what they were wrestling with, is they were, they were wrestling with this brokenness in their lives. So in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what Paul is basically saying is this, is that God wants us to enjoy sexual intimacy in marriage, 
by serving one another, giving ourselves fully and freely to one another, by never using sex as a weapon, by withholding sexual intimacy from one another. Paul was not catering to the culture of the Corinthians and their attitudes about sex. He was confronting it. While they were saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations, Paul was saying sexual intimacy is good in marriage, and it's a safeguard for our lives, our marriages, and our families. So what does God want us to do today? What does this mean for us today? Four things, four thoughts I want to share with you here. The first one is this, is that God wants us to enjoy sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. Are you with me here? God wants us to enjoy sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. Um, What Paul says, because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That what God wants us to do is he wants us to enjoy sexual intimacy in the context of marriage as opposed to sexual intimacy outside of marriage. See, marriage is intended to be a place of safety. It's intended to be, I don't know, it's just, it's intended to be this place where we can give ourselves fully and completely to one another. And when we engage in sex outside of marriage, what we're doing is we're engaging in sex, but we're, we're doing it without being fully committed and without being all in. Are you with me here? That what God's designed for us is he designed us for this kind of union and this kind of commitment where we're really committed to one another. That, that what God's designed and what his desire for us is that, that we fully embrace who we are in marriage and that husbands fully embrace their wives and the wives fully embrace their husbands. And that we give ourselves fully, not just skin to skin giving ourselves to each other, but giving ourselves body to body, mind to mind, soul to soul. And that was what God intended from the very beginning, that the two should become one. This was God's design, real intimacy, where two become one. By the way, by the way, uh, this is kind of a side note, but I think it's worth talking about. It's worth talking about. I don't know where else to put it in here, so I'm going to put it in here. How often should a married couple take time for sexual intimacy in marriage? How often? Don't answer. Please. Okay? How often? How often? Okay. Sheila Gregoire, this is her response to that. I like what she said. Uh, Sheila Gregoire, she said this in her book, 31 Days to Great Sex. She said, so how often is enough? often is enough. I mean, Paul just told these, he just told them. I mean, in, 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 what does he say here? He says, because of temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He just told them that they are to be involved in this, this holy union together. So how often is enough? And this is what Gregor says. She said, I would say at least twice a week. I'd say at least twice a week uh, if I were forced to pick a number. But for some couples, especially when they're younger, more would probably be good. More would probably be good. And the happiest couples I have found were those who were making love three to four times a week. When you connect like that, it has repercussions on how you feel about each other. Are you with me here? 
This is not, we're not talking about just skin to skin. We're talking about, we're talking about body to body, mind to mind, soul to soul. And when you are mind to mind, body to body, soul to soul, three and four times a week, there's something about that that is really good uh, for a really good, healthy marriage. Uh, what Gregor goes on to say is, maybe we should stop asking, what's the minimum I can get away with? And start asking, how can I get in the right frame of mind so I can show my spouse how much I love him or her? She says this, make the second into a habit, and I guarantee your marriage will get better. All right? Okay, the question, by the way, how often should we make time for sexual intimacy in marriage? I'd like to speak to it a little bit differently for a moment if I can. Okay? See, a lot of people, what they do is they wait till they're in the mood. Now, a lot of times, he's in the mood and she's not. A lot of times, he's in the mood and she's not. And then in other, in other marriages, a lot of times, she's in the mood and he's not. And in some marriages, neither one of them are in the mood at the same time. You know what happens when nobody's in the same mood at the same time? It begins to go away. That friend of mine, wow, wow, lives in another community, okay? Lives in another state, so I'm safe in telling the story. You're not going to figure out who it is because you don't know him. You've never had the occasion to meet him. Uh, years went by. No sex in the marriage. Completely sexless. Uh, can you guess where the marriage went? Yeah. It was pretty painful. It was devastating. Not just for him, not just for her, but for their kids. There was a devastating impact from that. Uh, and that's what, what happened. Uh, here, here's the thing. Let me just talk about this for a moment. If you wait till you're in the mood, then you're building your life on waiting. Uh, if I wait until I feel like doing good, okay, are you with me here? Feel like good, doing good. Is doing good a good thing? If I wait until I feel like doing good, there's going to be a lot of times where I'm not doing good. Just being honest with you. If I wait until I feel like being gracious, I won't be gracious. Okay? If I wait until I feel like it, there's going to be a lot of not being gracious. If I wait until I'm in the mood to show kindness, like on the freeway, he who laughs relates. Okay? Uh, if I wait until I feel uh, like being gracious, if I wait until I feel like showing kindness, if I wait until I feel like putting others first, if I wait until I feel like being humble, if I wait until I feel like forgiving, if I wait until I feel like serving then life is all about me. I am one great, big, huge, selfish, just this great, just completely absorbed with the suck of self and completely worthless to every other person around me. Well, I'm going to tell you, because there's no place for that in marriage. There's no place for that way of thinking. There's no way, place for that way of living in the family. 
when people live their life that selfishly absorbed, waiting until they're in the mood, they create all kinds, they create a ripple effect of unhealthiness in their marriages and their families. I'm going to say there's a better path and a better way. So let's get to that and let's develop that. Second thing we see in this text is God wants us to serve one another. That's the better way. God wants to serve one another in sexual intimacy. How? By putting our spouse first. By serving him, serving her, by understanding and satisfying his or her sexual intimacy needs. In other words, it's not all about me. It's about me serving my spouse. In in, in verse 3, Paul says, The husband should fulfill. By the way, interesting words. The husband should fill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. In, in Greek, in Greek, it literally says that the husband should repay his debt to his wife. That's a debt I don't mind repaying. Uh, it, it is that I have a holy obligation to joy. And joy has a holy obligation to me. To repay a debt. And, and this is very interesting wording, and, and you're going to see this, I, I think, as we, we develop it. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, it, Philippians chapter 2 talks about the importance of serving one another. In, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another. Husbands, regard your wives. Wives, regard your husbands. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Husbands, don't just look out for what's best for you. Wives, don't just look out for what's best for you. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. When that becomes the rule of life and how we live, it has huge impact for good in our marriages. It has huge impact for good in our families. That God wants to put our... Spouse first in every area of our marriages, including sexual intimacy. And the better both of us are at putting the other first in all things, the healthier, stronger our marriage will be. Third thought that is really important is this. God wants us to give ourselves fully and freely to one another in sexual intimacy without holding anything back. Where do I see that? Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it, to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Here, uh, the word body is a synecdoche. And basically what that means is, uh, a synecdoche is just like when you use a part to mean the whole. For, for example, uh, let's say that when I want to marry Joy, when I'm a young man and I go to her dad, Vic, and I say, may I have your daughter's hand in marriage? I'm not asking for her hand. I'm asking for her. And when the body, when the Bible's talking about the body here, it's talking about the body being representative of all that we are. That we're to give all, husbands are to give all that they are to their wives. Wives are to give all that they are uh, to their, their, their husbands. Finally, fourth principle, never, 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 when? Never, 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 never use sex as a weapon against your spouse. 
Don't do it. Now, the Bible doesn't say don't use sex as a weapon. But this is what it does say, and it incorporates this, because this happens a lot. There are times where wives will hold back from their husbands, and there are times where husbands can hold back from their wives, and it's a way of manipulating and controlling. This is unholy. This is unhealthy. This is unbiblical. This is ungodly. It is not good for marriages. It is not good for families. Never use sex as a weapon against your spouse. The the scripture says in verse 5, do not deprive each other. The word apostereo literally means to defraud, steal, or cheat. That's what it means. Remember when we talked about that a a husband has a, a, a duty to fulfill? And how I said to repay a debt? When you don't repay a debt, you are taking and keeping something that belongs to another person. You are defrauding them. You are cheating them. And that's the word that's being used here. Normally, when we think of cheating in marriage, we think of someone who's going outside of marriage for sex, and that is. But when we are depriving in marriage, we are cheating in marriage. It's just a different kind of cheating. It's just, in either way, it's not good for us. Either way, it's not good for us. I'm not defending the idea of going outside of marriage at all. We already talked about that last week. If you need to, go back and listen to the message. It's online. You can listen to it. We talked about sexual morality. We talked about how it's damaging for our lives. But withholding sex and having a sexless marriage isn't good for us. It really isn't, isn't good for us. Now, there is a caveat here that I feel like I need to speak to. If you're having a hard time responding to the sexual needs of your spouse, you don't just need to have sex with your spouse. You need to address the problem. Are you with me here? I'm not saying just have sex. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're having a problem and there's a reason why you don't want to be involved and engaged, then you need to say, I'm really having a hard time. Can we talk about this? Not where you're attacking your spouse, but where you're addressing the problem. Um, If you're having a hard time responding to the sexual needs of your spouse, then you need to address the problem. If you're feeling resentment because of something your spouse has done, then you need to address it. You need to talk it out. And then you need to forgive one another. By the way, all of that's very Christian. All of that's very biblical. Okay? If you're having problems... And this is another thing that we have to talk about. If you're having problems with your spouse because of something from your past, okay? If you're having problems with your spouse because of something from your past, all of us have a past. Every one of us does. Some of us have done things that we wish we had never done. Some of us have done things we wish we had never done, and we feel a great deal of shame about that. And because of the shame we feel, sometimes it's very, very hard for us to enter into and give ourselves fully to another person because we've attached a lot of shame to the idea of sex. Why? Because we feel shame because of what we've done in the past. Some of us, we struggle with moving forward in our lives because of how we've sinned. But some of us... We struggle in our lives because of how we've been sinned against. 
And what I am not trying to do is preach a moralistic message that, that just stomps on your heart where your heart has been cruelly treated uh, by another person. Maybe uh, what you're, you struggle with is that you were molested when you were younger or you were exposed to something by another person you should have never been exposed to. And, and folks, that happens a lot. It really does. And, and, uh, but what we need to do is um, where there are problems like that, we need to get the proper kind of help we need. Okay? What am I talking about, proper kind of help? Uh, I'm talking about, uh, in my life, I have a number of guys that I can open up with and I can talk with them. I can tell them pretty much everything. I just, you know, I have no secrets with them. Uh, I can talk to them uh, about my failures. I can talk with them about my pain. Uh, and, and I can, I, I don't have to be, I don't have to try to, you know, be macho and cool and have it all together. I can just be Garrett, the real Garrett. And I can let them speak truth into my life. Uh, sometimes that, that what we need is the counsel of a good friend. Uh, but someone who's safe, I have learned by opening up with pe- people that there are some people who are just are not safe to share with. Uh, so don't open up with a person unless you know they're safe. Don't do that. Okay? Uh, and, and so sometimes it can be a good friend. Sometimes it can be someone maybe who's kind of like a spiritual mentor who may be a lot further along spiritually than you are. And sometimes, sometimes it can be very, very helpful for us to get the help of a really good Christian therapist. Are you with me here? But this is what you need to know is that there is hope and you can experience healing. And it may not be easy to get to the place where you can really fully give yourself to your spouse, but I, I, I believe, see, I believe, I believe the gospel. I believe the gospel. I believe the gospel. I don't believe in self-help. I'm not trying to give you a self-help message. I'm trying to give you a salvation message. Because I believe there's absolutely nothing God cannot redeem. I believe there's nothing bigger or greater than God. I believe there's no failure that I've ever committed. There's no pain I've ever been through. There's no way I've ever been sinned against that God isn't greater. See, I believe in a God who is great and a God who is merciful and a God who redeems. And sometimes working out that redemption in our lives can be painful and hard and difficult. But there's hope. There's hope in the person of Jesus. God intends for marriages uh, to be a safe place for people to come together, giving themselves fully to one another, body, mind, and soul. A sexual intimacy is supposed to be a source of blessing and enjoyment for husband and wife where we find joy in serving the sexual intimacy needs of another. That God wants us to enjoy sexual intimacy in marriage by serving one another, giving ourselves fully and freely to one another, and by never using sex as a weapon, by withholding sexual intimacy from our spouses. Let's pray. God, when I am... God, what we need 
is we need your grace and we need truth. Lord, what we don't want to do is we don't try to bend the Bible around our thinking or our attitudes or our actions where those things are unhealthy. Instead, what we want is we want our lives to be shaped by the gospel. We, we want to experience your uh, redeeming work in our lives. Uh, we, want to redeem, we want to experience your redeeming work in our sexuality. We want to experience it in our marriages. We want to experience it in our families. Uh, God, I want to pray today for those here who maybe are really struggling maybe struggling with something that they did when they were younger, maybe struggling with something they did earlier today or yesterday. God, I want to pray for those here who, who perhaps they've been sinned against and, and, and maybe uh, just deeply injured by another person. And, and Lord, what I want to pray is I want to pray for healing. I want to pray for healing in their lives. <coughs> I want to pray for healing, and I want to pray and ask you to restore them. And I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.